Thanks, Brian. Good morning, everyone. Great to see you all. Funny, the car seemed to know which way to go. <laughs> and uh, good to hear those testimonies. If, uh, if I, by some chance I should make it to 90 like Curly, and the Lord should tarry, it's good to know you all remember my testimony for me. <laughs> when I forget that verse that I read, or that critical moment in my testimony. All right, praise the Lord. We're a family, we know each other's testimonies, it's great to hear them, there's always something new in them and uh, they're just like revitalised every time we hear them. I'm going to give a talk today called Sensitive Topics. So it's a bit sensitive, it's something that's a bit hard to talk about, Um, but I think there's a wonderful message for us. Um, And this was instigated or triggered by an article I read just recently uh, from the 6th of March, so what's that? Uh, 13 days ago, uh, in the Washington Post called uh, Why Are We So Tolerant of Church Bigotry? Why Are We So Tolerant of Church Bigotry? And I believe it's an attitude that we're coming across more and more these days, that particularly since the, uh, I think it was 2018, the the same-sex marriage law was enacted, the Marriage Act was was rewritten. Uh, There's been a, a sort of a shift uh, where because it is now law that uh, the Christian position, well, the Bible position, has become more and more um, uh, almost illegal, you know, uh, not. And, and therefore you can have a, this is an opinion piece by, written by a lady called Kate Cohen, um, why are we so tolerant of church bigotry? So basically wanting to sort of... Um, sweep the churches completely aside, and we know there's all sorts of different types of churches. But I just thought I'd explore this a bit. It's not an easy easy um, topic, but um, something we need to think about, and we, of course we need to have a position on, and we talk to people in the workplace, in our communities, uh, in our schools and so on. So first of all, bigotry, perhaps for those that aren't familiar with the word, means intolerance. So the saying, this person is saying the churches are intolerant. Uh, to be bigoted is to have an obstinate holding on to a, an unreasonable position or creed. Uh, it is to be narrow-minded. And um, I'll just tell you a bit about the beginning of this article. She's a mum who lives in a place called Albany, New York State, the state of New York, not the city. Um, and they pronounce it Albany there, not Albany as we do. And it's actually, I think, the capital of uh, New York State. If, does anyone know? I'm good at geography? Right, so it is the capital of New York State. Um, <clears throat> and she says, When one of my kids was 12, he was invited to join the esteemed local choir, the crown jewel of Albany's Episcopal Cathedral of All Saints. Now, the Episcopal Church in America is the Anglican Church. It's just the American name for it. Uh, so it's a cathedral of all saints, and it was a very prestigious choir. Now, this lad, 12 years old, she says, although he was an atheist, he didn't object to singing Christian music because years of singing in uh, holiday concerts and so on had accustomed him to singing Christian songs, you know, so he didn't mind. However, um, while she was calculating as a proud mum how she was going to get him to the two rehearsals every week for this this prestigious choir, he said to her, he asked her whether the church condoned same-sex marriage. She said she didn't know. And he said, well, if they didn't 
condone it, he wouldn't join the choir, this 12-year-old. And she checked, and most emphatically, they did not condone same-sex marriage. So the, the son, the 12-year-old son said, well, OK, that's it, I'm not joining that choir. And she, she makes a joke here. She says, aren't you impressed by the moral clarity I had after being schooled by my 12-year-old? You know, in other words, he had the right position, you know, anti-same-sex... Uh, no, anti-bigotry um, uh, and so on. And uh, she, she spoke to the choir master and told, told the, why her son was not going to join the choir. And he said, well, you know, we, we're moving forward. We're being progressive. We're going to get there eventually and all this sort of thing. Um, and then she tells a story about another group in Florida and how this group that were going to acquire that were going to sing were disinvited two hours before the performance because it was found out that some of the members uh, were gay and they were living together and so on. So they cancelled their performance two hours before. And then she really gets stuck in um, <clears throat> to the um, the church's position on homosexuality and so on. And uh, she there are phrases here like church-sponsored homophobia. Um, Homosexuality is still a sin. Uh, wonder where the, you know, the Catholic Church gets this idea from, and so on and so on. Uh, Soft-spoken prejudice in God's name, and so on and so on. So you get the idea, right? I don't need to go on and on about that. But let's just first of all start by um, looking at it, at the Bible position. So we've got that clear. So we'll go to Genesis chapter one. And in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, it reads, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And uh, in the image of God, male and female. Chapter 2, verse 24. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. And now Jesus quotes both of these verses in Matthew chapter 19 when he's being uh, questioned by the Pharisees and they're trying to trick him and so on and ask him this question about, you know, this man who, who has all, uh, this woman who has all these husbands and so on. <clears throat> and he quotes both of these verses that uh, in the beginning, man, uh, God created man in the image, in his own image, male and female, and and this one in chapter 2, that a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. And he adds on, what therefore God has joined together, let not man put asunder or split apart. And these are quoted in the, in the marriage service quite often. And um, Jesus refers to the Old Testament. Now the it's just, principles are established in the Old Testament and the New Testament. We can see them pass through and are quite often changed as they move into the new covenant of grace and so on. But uh, we see this wonderful um, thing that God has done where he's created these, these two different things and they come together and become one thing through marriage and one flesh. And it's like a miracle. It's something that we can enjoy in the fellowship, but people in the world enjoy too, don't they? They discover that the miracle of it when they get married and there's this sort of amazing, um, because it becomes a legal um, contract, 
that it sort of creates something new out of what were two, two things that were different. And um, this is instituted by God, and that's also mentioned in the, in the marriage service, in particularly in our marriage service. Um, and I often you know, talk to this about young people and, uh, and, and try and impress it on them that you know, this is an amazing thing that God has created. Now, let's just go to Leviticus chapter 18. That doesn't mean to say, of course, that marriage is always a piece of cake, does it? <laughs> it's a miracle, but... Uh... <laughs> Thank you, dear. <laughs> um, verse 22. And it says, Thou shalt not lie with mankind as with womankind, it is an abomination. That's fairly brief in the King James Version. But uh, you can look it up in the concordance, what it's actually saying, or you could read it in a, in a more modern English translation. And I'm going to read you what it says in the New Living Translation, which is a modern English translation. And it says quite plainly, this verse, verse 22, Do not practice homosexuality. Having sex with another man as with a woman, it is a detestable sin. So that's pretty plain and direct, isn't it? Uh, and some people might say, well, that's Old Testament. But we will look at some verses in a moment in the New Testament where it's really very directed as well. Um, but before we do that, just go to the next chapter, chapter 19. Leviticus chapter 19. And in verse 33, it says, And if a stranger sojourn with thee in your land, you shall not vex him. But the stranger that dwells with you shall be unto you as one born among you, and thou shalt love him as thyself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Now, this is very interesting, and I'm going to refer to this more as, as we go on and we get into the New Testament and so on, that we know that uh, God created a relationship with Israel and that was like a marriage, and he refers to it as such. And in Jeremiah, it's mentioned a few times, you know, I'm married to you and so on, and and you've you know, been unfaithful and so on. He's talking about Israel as, as like a bride and he being the husband. And um, he speaks in, De in Deuteronomy in chapter 6, I think it is, that I've set my love upon you, not because you were the biggest of all the nations, but because you were the smallest. And I've chosen you. Um, you know, There's nothing particularly special about you, but I have chosen you. And that's sort of made you special just by that fact alone. And I'm married to you and I'm going to look after you and just be faithful to me and so on. And yet here in chapter 19, we see that strangers could come in into Israel and enter into this relationship in a sense and be part of the blessing. But were they allowed to do whatever they wanted? No, they had to follow the laws of Israel, didn't they? They could come in, they could have all the blessings, and we also read about this in um, Exodus 14 where the, the Passover is instituted, and it says in that chapter, if, if a stranger happens to be with you, they can partake in this Passover also. And how do we update that to the New Testament? They can be, the Passover is, of course, death passing over you. You, know, you can come and have eternal life. You can join in. You can be part of it. So even in the Old Testament where it was a relationship between God and his bride Israel, there was allowance for people to come in, but they had to do it God's way. They had to be obedient to the, the, all the laws that he set in place for Israel itself. So now let's go to the New Testament and just see what that says. 
Romans chapter 1. And there are a few passages, we'll just pick one. And um, <clears throat> before we read the passage about homosexuality here, just read verse 16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And what Paul's saying here, I'm not ashamed of this gospel, of, of going out and telling people, you know, the salvation message, uh, not just the Jew or the chosen people, people that were part of the, the first covenant and had had that blessing, but also the Greek, the Gentiles, those that were outside the camp, that weren't part of this uh, choice from, of God's in the Old Testament. It's, it's for everyone. And so this gospel, I'm not ashamed of it. And I guess message to us is as, as we go through sensitive topics, we're not ashamed of our position because we stand on, on the gospel of God, on the rock, the whole word, and not just little bits and pieces of it that suit us, you know, which is the sand, isn't it? Little bits and pieces, but the rock, the whole thing. And uh, we're not ashamed of it. And that's something to remember as people try and, uh, you know, in this same-sex marriage debate, push you into a corner or bait you or, you know, pigeonhole you, put you in a box. You know, you say this, don't you? Well, I'm just going to talk about that in a minute, how you can sort of circumvent that. But anyway, the passage that speaks specifically, we'll, we'll pick it up from verse 20. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So God is saying, you know, you see the design in the universe, in the world, in the creation, and you know that is enough evidence on its own. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And uh, God gave mankind the, the wisdom and the ability to think and reason and so on. And, and in many cases, he used it to make a case against God, against the existence of God. In verse 24, wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts, to dishonour their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the creator, who is blessed forever. Uh, the creature himself, man, humanism, um, the, the attitude of humanism. I read one book on humanism. There was a quote, if it doesn't, sh um, if it doesn't reveal the glories of man, don't do it. In other words, it's all about man, you know, and how glorious he is. Uh, for this cause God gave them up unto vile affections, verse 26, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature, and likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one towards another, men with men, working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error, which was meat. And uh, we'll just leave it there. But you, it's very direct, and this is Paul writing. And uh, some theologians hate Paul. They just put him aside and say, well, you know, he was, he was misogynistic and he was anti-gay and all these kind of things. So we really don't want to read him. Um, and that's what I'm saying about building your house on the bits of sand instead of on the rock. 
um, but we're not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Um, <clears throat> now, so you want to be a Christian, right? And, and you know, the world, there are over a billion of Christians, or is it 2 billion? No, it's something like 2.5 billion. I think I was just thinking of the, of the Catholic Church. Um, something like 2.5 billion. Um, you want to be a Christian and you perhaps don't like, don't agree with some verses. So what, what do you do? You could ignore scripture. You could reinterpret scripture. You could perhaps rewrite the Bible. Um, you could change scripture to move with the times. Or you could spiritualize it and say, you know, this is uh, not meant to be taken, you know, as it says. Um, but we don't do those things, do we? No, we stand on the word and uh, we're, not a, we're asked to be, in one sense, simple, but we're asked in another sense to be uh, wise and understanding and read our Bibles and appreciate the, uh, all the layers and the, and the nuances as well. So, yes, simple as children, you know, unless we're like that, we can't come to salvation. And I think that's to do with our humility and just accepting it, that it's a very simple gospel of salvation, but there is so much more in the Bible that is, you know, a bit more difficult. Even Peter says in his letter, doesn't he, he talks about Paul writing, he says some of his things that he wrote are hard to be understood. Remember that in the end of Peter's letter? Um, And this is perhaps one of those things. We do believe that all all scripture is the inspired word of God, and so we have to... um, we have to read it and we have to pray for guidance and we have to um, seek to understand it and go in the hard places. We don't, I don't think we hesitate to go to the hard places. Now, we're fairly certain about our salvation. And all the people said? Amen. Amen. About the experience we've had, as uh, we've heard in both the testimonies. When that experience of speaking tongues came, it was just absolutely transformative. And it was in my case too. That language was coming out. One minute I was an atheist and I was saying hallelujah, next minute, bang, I knew it was all true. And its language is pouring out. Where does it come from? It's like that verse in, in John chapter 3. The wind blows, you don't know where it comes from, where it goes. So I'm in my own little lounge room in Fremantle and, uh, and its language is, where's it coming from? Where's it going to? It's just amazing, all these syllables and it's loud and it could go on endlessly and so on. You learn that you can turn it on and off like a tap. You can pray in tongues for hours. You know, you can do it driving the car, you can... It's just incredible, isn't it? What a miracle it is. And God starts off with a miracle in our walk and then he keeps confirming his word with signs following. But we might be certain, but I want to talk about something else called the certainty trap, which is something I read about the other day. Um, It's when people believe that what they believe is unviolable, in other words, invincible, non-negotiable, unbeatable, and... um, in many cases in the world today, we can see this um, problem of the certainty trap where people are so convinced that they are right that you get, you know, a polarisation and you get two sides butting heads like that. You know, I think particularly, I mean, we all know the politics in the USA is like that, isn't it? It's the two sides like this. And no one gives an inch, no one shifts. Everyone's completely convinced whether you're red or blue that they're right and there's no shifting, so there's no negotiation, so there's no progress and often there's a logjam and, you know, it can't sort of, what they call bipartisanship, you know, to get things done together doesn't happen very much. And I find increasingly that people like this Kate Cohen who wrote this, this opinion piece 
and uh, supporters of same-sex marriage and, um, you know, all the gender issues that are going on have the same kind of absolute certainty now, getting more and more certain, particularly now that it's a law that uh, people of the same sex can, can marry. Therefore, ergo, Christians are bigots, hateful, hating, and so on, isn't it? And it's going to become more and more that way. And I sometimes think about that verse in Matthew chapter 24 where it says, and you should be hated of all nations for my name's sake. Well, of course, often hated just for the gospel's sake, but in this, in this other sense of holding to the word and not sort of adapting to the world or trying to sort of accommodate the world and this together and do this contortion, this sort of, uh, you know, acrobatic act of keeping both sides happy, sort of, um, if we sort of stick with it, then there's this more and more of this um, charge of bigotry and hating and so on. Is it a certainty trap what we're in? You know, the fact that we are certain about what we've got? In one sense, we are certain, but it's not a trap because it's the power of God unto salvation for all that believe. And, God, and I think God asks us to be far cleverer than this with people. You know, people who are pro-same-sex marriage and pro-gender fluidity and all that sort of thing, he doesn't ask us to, to butt heads with them and he asks he, to be so much cleverer. He says to be gentle as doves and wise as serpents. You know, win souls, not win arguments. What's the point of saying you're wrong and pointing fingers and all that? So I personally, you know, know that many young, um, as a high school teacher, formerly, know that many young people are confused about their identity and their gender and all that. And I don't blame them. I don't, you know, point fingers at them. I can, and almost don't have an opinion about this gender identity well stuff because it's just the way of the world. And what goes on in the world is not God's space, is it? In our space, it's like the stranger who comes in. Love the stranger, it says there in Leviticus. He's coming to you. He's part of you. He's going to follow your rules. Okay, we'll love him and accept him. But outside, well, that's different. That's, that's their life. We don't try and point fingers and change society because that's not God's space. And, you know, it's a free country, isn't it? What did Jesus do? When it came to the crunch, he certainly taught. He went around teaching. But when it came to this point, he, it says he opened not his mouth like a lamb to the slaughter. He didn't fight. He could, didn't call for 12 legions of angels to come down and deliver him, which he said he could have done. But like a, a lamb before its shearers is dumb, he just went and, and was slain. And... Uh, he stays silent. Why did he do it? Out of love for the whole world. If he didn't you know, give his life as that perfect sacrifice, there wouldn't be the opportunity of salvation, of eternal life, of life itself, uh, and that more abundantly. So I guess the point is we don't have to, you know, I sometimes think, do we have to have an opinion on these things? I don't have to have an opinion on anything except God is true, his word, know that, and know that, well, that's your space. You can do what you like. I'm not going to tell you what to do. It's just when you come into this space, and I will, I'm inviting you to come into this space, please please see the wonderful salvation that's available in life. And uh, people are confused. Pastor Mike mentioned to me the other day that he, he'd he been listening to someone, this is many years, decades ago, um, someone who was a very um, strident lesbian, 
and the rah-rah-rah and all about rights and protest and so on. And then he met her ten years later and uh, <clears throat> she was married and had two children, quite happy. And he said to her, oh, what happened you know, with the lesbian lifestyle? And she said, oh, I grew out of it. Um, I'm not saying that's the case and, you know, for everyone, but it's just a, an anecdote. But uh, I just heard that the other day. Actually, what's the Bible's advice to us uh, in the New Testament? We've read what it says about the stranger in the Old Testament. And I think a, a good example is in Luke chapter 10, the story of the Good Samaritan, because it says, who, who is my neighbour? Is it, is it just people in the church? Or is it wider than that? Luke chapter 10. And uh, this young man, a certain young lawyer in verse 25, speaking to Jesus, stood up and tempted Jesus, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He's tempting him. He's trying and testing him. And he said unto him, Jesus said to the young man, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And he, the young lawyer, answering, said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy strength and with all thy mind and thy neighbour as thyself. So he's quoted the first two commandments there from the Old Testament. And he, Jesus, said unto him, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. But he, the, the young lawyer, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, And who is my neighbour? And sets up this opportunity for this parable. Um, and Jesus says... Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. And they went to, and went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the morrow when he departed, he took out two pence and gave them to the host, and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again I will repay thee. Which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbour unto him that fell among the thieves? And he said, He that showed mercy on him. Then said Jesus unto him, Go and do thou likewise. And so we can see so many uh, little messages through this, these few verses here in this story. There's so much symbolism in this story uh, as well. There's like so many multi-layers. And, uh, but just to, to bring, it, bring out a few of them... Um, some of you were at the combined meeting last week. Pastor Kevin talked about uh, he talked about Jericho and the Dead Sea and the Jordan River and how it was below sea level. Do you remember that? Those that were there, he says it's like a type. It's it's down. It's low. It's it's it sort of represents the world being uh, you know the evil place more so. Jerusalem, on the other hand, is in a mountainous region. It's about seven hundred and fifty meters above sea level. 
and, you know, it talks about the city of David, Zion, which is the highest part of the city, and that it's sort of raised up on high. There's a type in that. Uh, Jericho is actually 250 metres, give or take a few metres, below sea level. It's near the south end of the Jordan River where it goes into the Dead Sea, which is about 450 metres below sea level, which is incredible, isn't it? And it, obviously from 450 metres below sea level, can't flow into the sea. It's very t- too low and uh, it's dead. You know, it just flows in there and uh, not anywhere else. Um, and so we have this the symbolism. Uh, Jericho is so often represents the world in the Bible, particularly in this story. He goes down from, you know, the grace of God, the place where God is, in a sense, to the worldly place. Jericho, of course, was that city that was the barrier to the promised land when they came through the wilderness. There it was with this fortress in the way and they had to defeat it. And, of course, miraculously they went around, blew the trumpets and so on. The walls fell flat. So the Lord brought them into the promised land with a miracle by defeating this city. There have been many Jerichos through history in this place. Uh, This person goes down there. He falls amongst thieves. He gets... His clothes get taken off him and he's naked and half dead. You know, his, his righteousness is taken away. So often the, the robe represents righteousness. He becomes naked. He's wounded and beaten up by the world. He's half dead. The priest comes by. The Levite comes by. And, of course, they were bound by their um, Levitical laws not to touch a dead body or they'd be unclean. So they thought, oh, there's someone lying there. Could be dead. I'll go ra- right around on the other side. And this person comes down who's a Samaritan. The Samaritans weren't uh, Israelites. They were despised people. They'd been, they were the descendants of people that had been brought down uh, and resettled in this area. And uh, they were despised, you know, so you remember the story of uh, Jesus at the well and the woman says, you know, why are you speaking to me? Because we have no dealings with each other. Um, and yet this Samaritan just sees Someone lying there and goes over, he says he has compassion on him and he goes over and he binds up his wounds and he pours in the oil and the wine, both of which are symbols of the Holy Spirit, sets him on his own beast and brings him to an inn and takes care of him. And what I see in that verse, verse 34, is, is the compassion in action, the Holy Spirit being uh, offered, uh, the burdens borne. You know, Jesus was, he said, I'm going to bear your burdens for you. In a sense, that beast there is like Jesus, and he brings him to an inn, almost like a fellowship, a place of uh, a, where they, it's God's space, and takes care of him. And then the next verse, uh, two pence, quite often it was like a penny for a day, uh, stay here for a couple of days, and then I'm going to come back. What does that remind you of? Who's coming back for us? Jesus Christ, isn't he? You know, I'm going to put you in this safe place, this fellowship, I'm going to pay the price for you. I'm going to bear you, bear you so you, don't, you can rest, carry you there, heal you, pour in the oil and the wine, the Holy Spirit, take care of you, come back for you, and I'm going to pay all, all the cost of this uh, looking after you. Which, which was the one that, looked, that did the Lord's will? The one that was compassionate, the one that uh, helped this person get to the place of safety, get the Holy Spirit. You know, Jesus said, I'm going to speak in parables that you'll understand, you know, by the Spirit later. But, you know, many people will just think, oh, it's a story about compassion. We understand there's more to this story, don't we? That it's really about the Spirit as well. And so what does that mean for people who are um, 
very strident about their their beliefs in you know same-sex marriage and relationships and all those sorts of things, who want to perhaps get you into a box and say, so do you say anyone who is gay is going to go to hell? And that's a classic, isn't it? They got Israel Folau that way. They just put it up on, what was it, Facebook or something. Izzy, you know, for those that don't know, Israel Folau was a famous rugby union and rugby league player a few years ago. And uh, he was... Uh, often sort of talked about his Christian faith, so people wanted to, you know, get him. And so, Izzy, um, do you believe... What's going to happen to gay people? They're going to go to hell. So this blew up into a huge thing where he lost his career, lost his multi-million dollar contract and everything because he wouldn't back down on it. But I think, as I said before, we're asked to be wise and clever and not let people put us into that position. What we're asked to do is to, you know, not be ashamed of the gospel but bring it out in a way that is going to save someone, not, not do this. A polarisation, the certainty trap, two people with opposite opinions, both certain that they're right, pushing against each other. Uh, this is where, when Jesus said, I want you to be wise as serpents. You know, serpents, you know, that's almost like an allusion to the devil, isn't it? He was the serpent, you know, and he was pretty crafty. You say, oh, I want you to borrow a few of those tricks, but in a good way and be gentle, you know, you want to win souls. We're not trying to destroy souls like the devil is. We want you to win souls. So how can you do that? Um, let's go to Second Peter chapter 2. So that guy that was beaten up on the way down to Jericho, I think, you know, people today, they're a little bit beaten up about things like gender and identity and so on. And, um, you know, like people who normally w- wouldn't have been confused 50 years ago are now confused and uh, perhaps being led into... Because, you know, many, as I say, being a teacher, you, you know that some people are more impressionable than others and they're, you know, trying to work out who they are and all these sorts of things. So... There's so many more options out there and they're available just by looking on your phone. And, uh, and if you show an interest in it, it feeds you more. The algorithm feeds you more and pretty soon you're overwhelmed with it. Second uh, Peter chapter 2, verse 7 talks about Lot living in the city of Sodom. But this is the New Testament writing about it. This chapter is about living in the world and amongst all the evil of the world uh, all the, the different uh, forces, worldly forces going on and you're the sort of city of God sitting in the middle of it, uh, both individually as your, your tabernacle filled with the Holy Spirit but as a fellowship as well. And Peter is giving some advice and he says here in verse 7, and God delivered just Lot, just as in righteous, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. For that righteous man, Lot, Dwelling among them, in seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. And that's the thing that people outside have already kind of chosen. We're inviting people to come in, but not sort of saying to people, you've got to change your life outside. It's a free country. They can do what they want. And how did verse 9... He knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. Well, in that story, God literally sent two angels to get Lot and take him out of this place. 
And But while he was living there, what did Lot do? Did he go out there telling everyone to change? No, he only dictated what was allowed to happen when people came into his house. It's when the two angels came into his house and the city came about and said, bring them out. We want to have carnal relations with these two men. He said, no, do not so wickedly and so on and so on. Uh, another story. There's a lot of other aspects to that story. But um, he said, no, in this space, this is God's space, you will not do that. And that's what we say in our space. Um, so we're not, we're not asked to be like Fred Nile, for those that remember Fred Nile, uh, who was in Parliament <laughs> many years ago and a, and a Christian minister. We're not uh, the religious police, the thought police, uh, the revolutionary guard, you know, in Iran. We'll knock on your door at three in the morning and drag you away. Uh, but we do protect our space in, in a, you know, we can be firm about that, or we do it in, in a courteous and, and a gentle way. Um, when, what did Jesus say? In Matthew 24, when he's talking about the end of the world, stand in the holy place. He, he that reads, let him understand. Well, we understand, don't we? We're in the holy place. We're in the holy place individually because the Holy Spirit's within and as long as we walk you know, on the straight and narrow path that leads to life and, and we don't deviate to the left or the right and as a fellowship we keep the principles right as well. Um, but we're always welcoming of the stranger to come in. As we read in Leviticus, that's what God wants. So what's the obvious answer when you're baited? And Do you say gay people are going to go to hell? What's the obvious answer? Everyone's going to hell. <laughs> Everyone's going to hell. We're not making any distinction. Whether you're a criminal or a law-abiding citizen, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You know, until you've repented, been baptised the Bible way and, re- and received the gift of the Holy Ghost with all the signs following that, were, that the New Testament talks about. And, and so let's not put us in a box and say, you, you, want, you want to tick that box and say you're, you're a homophobe, you're a hater, you're a, a bigot and so on. Let's change the topic and be gentle as doves, wise as serpents and get to the good part. You know, This is what you can have. And we're not asking you to change. But if you come in, you'll change. And God will do that. We won't do that. We, it's not our rules that will make you change. Try getting the Holy Spirit. See what happens. So we invite, pe- enjoy, uh, invite people to join this different space and uh, love the stranger as someone loved us, someone reached out to us. You know, often we were argumentative when people f- first spoke to us. Suzette came and knocked on my door and I argued with her for, a, for an hour, you know, but I still came along to the meeting on Sunday. Because inside I started to think, this could be it. This could be the big one. Uh, Let's finish in John chapter 3. And this... This is Jesus speaking, and he just sums it up here in one verse. Verse 17. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And it goes on to say in the next verse, he he that doesn't believe is condemned already. So Jesus didn't come to condemn. He didn't come to do this, to be polarised, to to get into that certainty trap uh, trap. 
which is when two two opposing sides get together and, and will not give an inch. But he came to that anyone that believes in him might be saved. So let's just remember that and not be afraid of this, this conversation when it comes up, but you know, know our Bibles, know our, what we can say and um, be confident about it, that we can um, still be gentle and loving and um, not put into that box that we don't want to be put in. And all people said, Amen. Amen.